just beautiful truth of the love of Jesus Christ. Kids, want to dismiss you to Kids Connection, so pre-K and kindergartners, you guys can make your way to Children's Church. Run, don't, no, don't run. Walk, don't run. As you make your way there, that's room three around the corner over here if you're escorting them <clears throat> to that location. Um, we all love donuts, right? We love donuts. I was reminded of my love for donuts this week as spring break was able to take my kids uh, out for donuts. And I love the apple fritter. It is my preferred donut. Uh, it's large. It's larger than your typical donut, which that's always good. Uh, it's got this texture, this chewiness to it. And plus, it has fruit in it, so I can convince myself that it's kind of good for me. So uh, the apple fritter is my preferred donut. The, um, every, anybody have a preferred donut? What is your go-to donut? I've already heard yours. You, yes, yours is something with sour cream, which really threw me. Um, I think we could all say that any donut is a good donut, but I'm not sure about the sour cream donut. Um, any other donut? Anybody's got a favorite over here? Say again? The old-fashioned? It's, yes, that's a great choice. Old-fashioned with coffee goes a long way. Anybody else? Yes? Lemon-filled. That suits you, Janie. That's, that's just suits you. Uh, that, yeah, I, I need to try. I've never had a lemon-filled donut. I need to go there. Okay. Anybody else got a preferred donut? Yes. The bear claw? The chocolate-covered one? Maple-covered one? Or just the straight regular? All of them? Yeah. Okay. There's not, let's just agree there's not a bad donut. Now, why do I bring up donuts? Well, um, you know that next week is Easter. And you know that because of our space issues and our, our remodel project isn't quite complete, we're going to be meeting in this room for three services. So we can't do two services next week. We have to do three. The first of the three starts at 8 o'clock. The second one is at 9.30. And the third one is at 11. So what we need is for a lot of people to come to our 8 o'clock because we're pretty sure a lot of people are going to come to the 9.30 and the 11. Here's the incentive. If you come at 8, you'll be able to get whatever donut you prefer, okay? I don't know what's going to be left between the 9.30 and the 11. have no idea. Maybe nothing. But at 8, the full slate, sprinkled, old-fashioned, you know, apple fritter, maple-covered, whatever, all of those will be supplied. So there's your incentive. If it works for you, if it fits into your schedule, if you're an early riser anyway, come at 8. The services will look the same. That'll give you the ability to get out of town if you need to or to get ready for people coming into town or be able to volunteer in the nursery because we're going to have an extra hour of nursery to to supply. So anyway, just want to encourage any of you that are available and capable to come to the 8 o'clock because we know that uh, we'll have crowds at the other two services. So there's my plug. And those of you that didn't eat breakfast, all you can think about right now is donuts. So Let's center our hearts on God's Word. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be reading and studying verses 10 and 11 this morning. And in our study of this letter, we've said time and again that Peter is writing to Christians in the northern part of Asia Minor, Bithynia, Cappadocia, these, these regions that are just south of the Black Sea. And, and the issue that these Christians face is a loss of identity. These Christians, they are not from an important place like Rome, which was the seat of the Roman Empire. 
They are not from Jerusalem, where the church had its beginnings. They are not from any particular ethnicity or or race. They are both Jew and Gentile alike. And that Gentile section would just be a mixed bag of, of cultures and nationalities. They are not directly connected to the Apostle Paul's ministry or any prominent member of the Twelve that we know of. These Christians are without identity. And so this is why Peter spends the first 45 verses or so rooting their identity in Jesus Christ. Rooting their identity and their confidence in the truth of the gospel. And so this is why in verse 10, where we finished up last week, this is why Peter says, once you were not a people, you had no identity. There's nothing that marked you out. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Meaning this, everyone around you thinks you're strange, you don't fit in, your your religion is completely out of step with the culture. That's okay, because you know what? You are God's people people. And if you belong to God, if you are his possession, then your identity is secure. Your inheritance is guaranteed. Your redemption is full. Once you had not received his mercy, but now you have received his mercy. Which brings us to verse 11. And it's here in verse 11 that the book moves into its second cycle. If first Peter were a play, verse 11 would be the start of the second act. If it were a piece of music, it would be the beginning of the second movement. Let's read it together. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verses 11 and 12. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the apostle writes these words. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May God bless his holy and inerrant word. You know, I think it's very possible for us to overcomplicate the simple faith to which we've been called. It's very possible to get wrapped up in doctrinal positions and in theological lingo and in certain camps of teaching and really miss the profound simplicity of Christianity. There is a stunningly simple faith we hold to, which is why I love the Apostle Peter, which is why I love this text, because in one word and then in about three major points, Peter condenses Christianity for us. And where Peter starts in his simple description of the Christian faith is with a summary of exactly what he's been saying from the start of the letter. He wraps it up with with one word. It's the direct address that starts verse 11, beloved. Addressing his audience as beloved, Peter is calling them to remember all of the glorious truth that's contained in the first part of the letter. Beloved. Beloved says that you're God's elect, meaning he has saved you by his mercy. Beloved says that Christ has shed his blood for you, that there's an inheritance kept in heaven for you, that that God's power is guarding you. Beloved says that you are a chosen people, you are a people for God's own possession, that he caused you to be born again, which means you were once dead, but now you've been made alive. 
The sum total of all that truth is a single word. Highlight it if you need to. Put it in all caps, neon lights if necessary. You are God's beloved. That's your identity. Peter has said it in about a dozen different ways, but boiled down, we have a God who has set his affections upon us. His perfect love, which because he's God, his love cannot be characterized in any other way. His perfect, pure love is directed toward you. You are his beloved. And so then out of that identity comes this strong personal appeal. He says, I urge you. Notice, this is not really a command. When, when, when Peter is urging them, what, what he's urging them toward, it can't be accomplished by sheer determination or by blind obedience. They must be compelled to act out of their status as beloved. He's saying this as the, as the outflow of this identity. And we're going to look at this strong urging appeal in three statements this morning. Live like an alien, fight like a soldier, behave like a representative. Live like an alien. He says, I urge you, in verse 11, as sojourners and exiles in this world. Now, this exile theme is not new in 1 Peter. The, the, the exile, cross-cultural, alien identity is something that I've repeated just about every week. I even titled the sermon series after it, Exiles. But it needs to be revisited again, because what really is an alien? An alien is somebody in exile, someone who's living in a place that is not his home. That's an alien. And what's a sojourner? A sojourner is one who is, is on a journey. Someone who is, who is on a pilgrimage, moving toward a destination, and that destination is home. I read a few concise definitions of these, of these terms this week. So an exile is away from home. A pilgrim is on their way home. A fugitive is running from home. And a vagabond is without a home. So Peter says to these believers, you are sojourners and exiles. You're away from home, but you're on your way home. And so these two words, you can see, they, they capture the way that you and I are meant to understand who we are and what we are doing in this present world. But here's the strength of what Peter's doing here. And maybe you, maybe you saw this. Peter is connecting your identity as beloved to your exiled status. You see that? Now, you'd think that if you were God's beloved, that, that everything for you should go perfect and your life would be easy and carefree, but that's not your experience, is it? No, it's not. And so Peter's saying, even though you have this status that, that says you're loved and cared for by the Lord of everything, that does not equate necessarily to you being at home and happy in this world. It does not equate to a nice, comfortable life in the here and now. No, no, no. You are beloved, but you're also not at home here. You're exiled. In fact, it's because you're beloved, God's beloved, that you're not at home here. And so hear me on this. It makes no sense for us to be talking about an exiled status. It makes no sense to talk about being on a journey or a sojourner unless you've embraced the truth of your eternity. 
You have to believe that there is such a thing as forever for this to make sense. Because if we are, in fact, marching toward an eternal destiny, if this place is not our final home, then everything in our life changes. If this life is it, if this is all there is, then I think the materialism and the hedonism of Western culture, it makes perfect sense. Because if you cut off eternity, if, if this life is all there is, then what is your life about? It's about getting all the pleasure and all the comfort that you can possibly enjoy in this life because this life is all you have to live for. But we don't believe that. We don't believe that today is our ultimate destination. We believe this moment is preparing us for our ultimate destination. And what that core Christian belief leads us to is a kind of of cross-cultural living that makes us strangers in this world. It's a kind of living that is at odds with Western cultural values because in our culture, things are so easy and so comfortable. We're so wealthy that we measure success by you know, the square footage of our homes. We measure success by the number of options that we can get on our cars and our trucks. We measure success by the age at which we might be able to retire or the quality of the food we eat or the, the price attached to our wardrobes. And on and on I could go with all of those measurables. Yet all those things are alien, foreign to a biblical view that says everything that exists now, everything that's going on now, everything I'm going through now is not ultimate. It's all but a journey toward, it's all preparation for what is to come. And so I'd ask you, do you live like an exile What's the goal of your living in the here and now? What was your goal last week? What does it look like for you to look back on the day and say, man, that was a good day. That was a good week. Why was it a good day? Why was it a good week? Let me tell you, the best days are the days that make you long for home, that prepare you for heaven, that anchor your heart to your eternity not to your here and now. The best days are the days that loosen your grip on what you have here and give you a hunger for what you were made for there. And because we have it so good here, you don't really believe, you aren't really sure that it's really going to be that good there. You know, we, we, we have a life where we have donuts and Steph Curry's jump shot and the Grand Canyon and Rembrandt and all these wonderful things. Let me tell you, those are but a shadow of the beauty and the wonder and the glory that awaits us there. If you've ever read The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis's final book in his Chronicles of Narnia series. There's a scene to the end where, where the whole crew is moving further up and further in, and they're basically moving into the internal state. And they keep just noticing the world around them, and that the, that the mountains look more like mountains, and the grass looks more like grass, and the water looks more like water, and everything is more alive and more rich and more full and more beautiful and more wonderful than what they ever thought it could be. That's what we were made for. And yet we grow very satisfied with making our mud pies here on this earth. But those feelings, they're most profound 
Those longings for home are, are most intense when? During suffering, right? During pain. When we encounter how profoundly broken the world is, that's when we are most longing for our eternal home. When we realize most profoundly that we are living as aliens and strangers in this world. Those are actually our best days. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says that it's better to go to a funeral than to a house of feasting. It's better. Do we believe that? We need to. Because that's preparing us for our home and not settling us in to what we think are the joys of life here. Live like an alien. Let, let Hebrews 13, 14 be your mantra. That's a verse that says, Here I have no lasting city, but I seek a city that is to come. Here I have nothing sure, nothing that I can really put my hope in, nothing that really gives me joy, because I seek a city that is to come. Live like an alien. Fight like a soldier. He goes on, says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which, which, which wage war against your soul. What's a passion? A passion is, is a powerfully motivating, emotionally laden desire. And those exist in us, do they not? Many of our passions get misdirected, and, and, and so that's what Peter's telling us, is we have to abstain from them. And the theology here is very, very important. Yes, if you're a believer in Christ, the, the, the power of sin has been broken. Jesus, he crushed sin's ultimate reign when he died on the cross. But the presence of sin still remains, doesn't it? And notice when he says, he says these passions, what do they do? He's talking to believers. These passions, they, they still swirl around you. They, they still exist. You still engage with them. What do they do? They wage war against your soul. And so one of the things this verse, this verse is striking against is Greek philosophy. If you know anything about Greek philosophy, you know that it was most heavily influenced by whom? A guy named Plato. And Plato propagated something called dualism, and we've talked about this before. And one of the things dualism taught was a complete separation between the material world and the immaterial world. That there was your higher life, the, the life of the mind and the spirit, and then there was your lower life, those things that your body engaged with on a material level. And so to the dualist, to the, to the platonic philosopher, the Greek philosopher, the life of the mind and the spirit, it was very highly valued. But the life of the body was almost completely disregarded. So you could have a very sophisticated life of the mind and spirit, and it would be perfectly okay for you to live like a complete and utter heathen because the material world and the immaterial world were thoroughly disconnected from one another. They were not connected in any way. It didn't matter what your body did because to the Greek, matter didn't matter. Get it? It's a philosophy joke. Matter didn't matter, right? It was base. It was, it was worthless, it was all your ideas. It was all the life of the mind and the spirit and these sorts of things. So Peter is saying very clearly, he's saying contrary to Greek thinking, your passions of the flesh, 
they deeply affect your soul. The word soul here means the whole person. Peter is saying to the dualist, how you live, it impacts all of your personhood. Sin impacts all of you. You can't compartmentalize it. You can't put this sin over here and not think that it doesn't hit you over here. It's going to destroy all of you. It wants to. It's waging war against you. So to these Christians that were living in the the midst of Greek thinking, surely tempted to compromise, Peter makes it very clear, there is a war of desire that is fought on the turf of your heart, and it's literally fighting for the control of your soul. And here's what you have to believe. That war, it's fought in every situation, in every location, and in every circumstance, and in every relationship of our lives. We must be very careful to not identify and define sin as only our outward behavior. We have a list of the three or four things that we think are really, really sinful, and we think, okay, I'm not doing that, so I'm doing okay. You know, no, sin results in behavior. The war of sin is being fought on the turf of your heart. Which means our soul is being carpet bombed when we lock into a pattern of sin. Have you ever locked into a pattern of sin? Not confessing it, not repenting of it, turning a blind eye toward it, keeping it compartmentalized over here where you think it's not hurting you or anybody else. No, 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 no. It's utterly wrecking you. Here's a question, and you military guys might do well with this question. What's the purpose of war? War only has one purpose, winning. And winning a war only has one purpose. What's that? Control. So they send in the Marines, they order the bombing runs to to weaken and defeat the enemy so that the good guys can move in and take control. That's why wars are fought. Same with our souls. Same with our souls. So you and I need to live with this sober awareness that there is being fought in a battleground or on a battleground that is our hearts a war for the very control of our souls. Because here's the deal. What controls your soul will control your desires, which will then control your behavior. Pastor John Piper speaks of the Christian living a wartime mentality. And he's exactly right. We cannot live as Christians today with a peacetime mentality where our guards are down and we're not making sacrifices and we're not thinking about our choices. We can't live that way as Christians. We can't live that way because there is a raging war in our soul and it rages because we live in a world of seduction and temptation where we have all these voices that are alluring us and these images and these indulgences that greet us every single day. That's the war. And this war is really being fought on two fronts. They're very similar, but they're also very different. This war of passions that that Peter is talking about, two fronts. The first front is evil desire. Evil desire is the desire for things that are clearly outside of God's will. These things that are, that, are, that are clearly prohibited by God. You know they're rotten. You know they're wrong. You can see how they're not good for your soul. But even still, they have a way of showing up, right? Evil desire shows up when you are tempted to lie about something. 
to lie about something at work in order to, 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 to cover your own tail or to gain favor with a boss so that you can get a promotion, therefore you can make more money. It's the temptation to, to lie, to, to, to present yourself as something you're not. That's an evil desire. It's a self-conscious moment when you step outside of God's call for you to abstain and to wage war. And you're like, well, Jay, I, I really didn't expect you to say that. I mean, we're talking about waging war. I, I really figured you'd come up with something a little bit bigger, more significant than maybe a little bit of lying. Well, that's because... That's because I'm concerned that the Christian definition of spiritual warfare, it isn't mundane enough. It isn't ordinary enough. It isn't everyday enough. We, we seem to classify spiritual warfare sort of in this realm that we cannot see or touch. It's something very spooky or rare. Something that, you know, Christian novelists write books about. And that's exactly what the enemy would love us to believe. But let me tell you, a, a, a spiritual war takes place when you go shopping. It takes place in your minivan if you're a mom or a dad. It takes place on social media. It takes place in the, in the normal rhythms of everyday life where you are faced with temptations of every kind. So when you gossip to a friend about another friend because there's something really juicy going on, you know you shouldn't be doing it, but you do it. That is giving way to evil desire. You've lost a war. Maybe it's refusing to push yourself away from the table when you know that you've eaten enough. You, you know that your relationship to food is sinful and you're very dependent on it and you just can't push back. That's a war. Are you a soldier? Are you, are you aware of the temptations that are, that are coming at you? that are seeking to wreck you of, of the way the enemy is going to attack, if you're not aware, you're going to lose that war. And so Peter is saying to us, you guys, you've got to take up the fight. There's a, there, there are crucial places in all of our lives where we must say, you know, the power of, of the risen Lord Jesus compels me and empowers me to say, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to see it wage war on my soul. You know, when you get out your credit card and you know that you're about to make a purchase that you, that you can't afford, you're going to extend yourself in a way that's just not good. It's going to limit the way you're able to give. It's going to limit the way you're able to be flexible in doing other things with your finances. That's evil desire. You've got to say, no, I can't do it. When you're selecting a movie to go see, and you know that there's this movie that, 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 that is crude and it's sketchy and it's not going to nurture your heart and it's going to take your mind in all sorts of places that your mind shouldn't go. You need to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give way to the evil desire because I can see how the war will affect the entirety of me. And I could just keep giving you examples because the battle for the heart, listen to this, the battle for the heart is not fought in three or four grand moments in your life. The battle for the heart is fought in 10,000 little moments of your life. You see that? There's a second front. So evil desires is the first front. The second front is the front of inordinate desire. Inordinate desire, simply stated, inordinate desire is when we make good things ultimate things. 
These are the natural, or excuse me, these are the neutral desires that have this tendency to, to morph in our hearts, to become kind of monstrous. So what was yesterday's desire now becomes today's demand. And what was today's demand, it's going to be tomorrow's need. That's the battle of inordinate desire. And here's what I mean, just again, everyday examples. If you're a homemaker and you get comfort out of a really clean, orderly house, you know what, that's a good thing. I'm not going to say that's a bad thing. But don't let that desire rule you. Don't let that desire rule you in a way that you can't have joy when there's a mess. If you're a businessman and you want to be successful in the workplace, if you want to build a solid business, that's a good desire, but that desire cannot become your functional God. It cannot take you to a place where where all you do is think and act and live and worry and obsess over the bottom line. If you're a student and you're after academic success, you should be. That's what it means to be a student. But that desire must not rule your heart. Your grades are not your identity. Good desires become bad gods when they control your heart. Good desires become bad gods when they control your heart. And so it's not just our struggle with evil desire. It's our struggle with inordinate desire that we have as sinners. Man, all kinds of points of attack, right? We all have the capacity to turn anything into a God replacement, and and the catalog of those things is literally endless. We have the capability of worshiping literally anything that exists. So if you're a student, a husband, a wife, a worker, a friend, an older person, a younger person, a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, basically, if you are here, what are the desires that tend to rule your heart? What are your functional God replacements? Where is the war being waged for your soul? And how can you fight like a soldier? Are you fighting? Do you live with a wartime mentality? Third thing, Verse 12, behave like a representative. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Honorable. Honorable before whom? Well, you're living among the Gentiles. They're probably not going to honor your behavior. So honorable before whom? Before God. Live in a way that pleases God, that honors God, that brings glory to God. If you are a believer in Jesus Your life no longer belongs to you. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And with that, you are placed by the sovereign hand of God in particular locations so that you can be his representatives there. You are an emissary. You know what an emissary is? Basically an ambassador. God has placed you in different spheres, in different neighborhoods, in different jobs and schools to be his ambassador to represent him in all of the places that he wants to be known now notice what it says here so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify god when they speak against you as evil doers, you're trying to live an exemplary life you're trying to live a life that honors god and the world that you live in because you're an exile and a stranger, they see that and say, you're an evildoer. This is happening today. We live in a world that is calling good evil and evil good. 
We, we live in a world that looks at evangelical Christians and says they're wrong, they're bigoted, they're weird, they're, their thoughts and their ideas about things like sexuality and morality, it's evil. They're wrong. They're so wrong they don't have a place in this society. They speak against you as evildoers. That's happening right now. But this is amazing. I don't know if you caught the twist that takes place in the verse. When a mocker and an accuser becomes a person who now glorifies God, what's happened? Their hearts have been transformed by the grace of God. That's your calling. Your calling is is so that people would actually come to believe in the truth of the gospel because of the way that you live your life in front of them. That your actions and your attitudes and your behavior would be this apologetic, this walking, talking defense of Christianity. And so that they would see your good deeds and though at first maybe think they're evil, ultimately they would work in a way that leads them to Christ, and they would glorify God. There's a wonderful story. It's a little book, just a couple hundred pages, by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. And Rosaria Butterfield, she was an English professor at the university, or excuse me, at Syracuse University. And she embodied everything you would think of regarding an English professor at a large secular university. Right? She was completely bent liberally in her thinking. She was a lesbian. She had all of these, she, she taught all these classes on sort of these strange angles and strange subjects. And she was going to teach a class on the Bible and sexuality, so she began to read the Bible. And as she began to read the Bible, she began to consult with a local pastor. And this local pastor began to spend time with her and invite her into his home and engage with her on a very real level to become friends with her. And over time, guess what happened? She was enfolded into the life of the church. She had become a believer in Jesus Christ. She repented of her sin and renounced her former life. She married eventually a pastor and now she has four children. The title of the book is Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She walked into a situation where her heart was to attack Christianity, to call good evil, but through the influence and the actions, the attitude, the presence of a believer, she came to glorify Christ by giving her life to him. In the summer of 1805, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors met in in council at Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation of the Christian message by a Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. After the sermon, a response was given by Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs. Among other things, the chief said, Brother, you say that there is but one way to worship and serve the Great Spirit. If there is but one religion, why do you white people differ so much about it? Why don't you all agree as you can all read the same book? Brother, we, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheating Indians, we will then consider again what you have said. Lots of examples like that in history, aren't there? Show me. 
This powerful message you claim is life-changing. Show me. So you don't just work honorably so you can make more money. You don't just live neighborly so your neighbors will like you. Everything you do in all the places where God has called you to do them is done for a deeper, higher purpose, the purpose of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To proclaim his goodness, to proclaim his forgiveness, to proclaim his power and his righteousness above all things. Live like an alien, fight like a soldier, behave like a representative. And I can't leave this passage with, without noting that it also in every way points us to the work of Christ. You may not see it directly, but think about it. Who was Jesus Christ? He was the ultimate exile. Scripture says that the birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man didn't even have a place to lay his head. He was not willing to have a place that he could call home. He was willing to face injustice and betrayal because he had the final goal of eternal redemption in his eyes. He could see the destination. He was the ultimate exile. He was the ultimate soldier. He gave his life to conquer sin and death. Paul says in Colossians 2 that he, Jesus, made a public spectacle over the enemies, triumphing over them by the cross. That's very military language. Jesus is the soldier of soldiers. He's the victor of victors. And then he lived every way as a representative. He was an emissary of the Father who had sent him. Jesus would say again and again, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've come to do one thing. One thing, I've come to do the will of the Father. He was an emissary. Hear what I'm about to say next, though. Jesus didn't just do that stuff to be your example. He did that as your substitute because you and me, we will never be able to stand before God and say with integrity that you have... That, that we have lived in every way as, as exiles. That we in every way have been really good soldiers. That in every way we've been awesome representatives. No, 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 no. We all fall short of God's call. This urging that Peter is supplying to us, none of us really live up to it. And so Jesus the exile, Jesus the soldier, Jesus the representative is the place where you and I, sinners, we can find hope. That's where we look doesn't mean we diminish or pull back or don't seek these things. It's just resolved thinking that said, our Savior has accomplished these things. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus. I would say this to you. There is no life, there is no satisfaction, there is no sturdy and lasting hope to be found outside of Jesus. You've looked a lot of places, I'm sure. And every one of them has felled you and fallen short and not been satisfying and given you no joy. Seek him. He will not turn you away. Repent and believe. Do it today. By way of conclusion, another call to remembrance that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
At the start of the sermon, I urge you to remember the status that Peter has been trying to communicate for about a chapter and a half. And to sum up that status or that identity, he addresses believers as beloved. You are loved. If you don't walk out of here with anything today, walk out of here with that. You are loved. Remember that. All week, remember that. But also remember this. Remember that the Lord is returning. Remember that he has promised to come back. His first coming was promised and he came. Will he visit again? You bet he will. He will come. And what will you be doing when he returns? Will he find you comfortable and at home in this world, accommodating the culture around you, or will you be in exile? Will he find you fighting your sin, waging war against it, or will you just be making excuses and and accommodations? Will you have lived like a representative with many alongside you, many who have come to Christ because of your faithful and consistent witness? You know, almost none of us came to Christ on our own. Humanly speaking, we came because someone we cared about, someone who cared about us, influenced us, pushed us in that direction. For most of us, it was a mom or a dad or a friend, a brother, a sister, someone we went to school with, someone from down the block, whatever. On that day of visitation, you will glorify God alongside those people. On that day of his return. Peter loves the return of Jesus. We're actually going to see this repeat itself again and again as we move through the book. He loves the return of Jesus. Why does he love the return of Jesus? Because he knows and he's acquainted with the suffering and the pain of people who live in a culture that's not their home. He knows what it looks like to be persecuted. He knows what it looks like to be out of step with the predominant thinking. And so the coming of Christ is this blessed hope. It's this outlying event that we can have confidence in and we can, we can just trust that that day, when it comes, it'll make everything worth it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and for your love for us. Thank you for what's been said here, the challenge to to not be so uncomfortable with our status as exiles, but to acknowledge that in a sinful world, a world like the one we live in, we just won't be at home. There's no ideal place. And so, God, we look to the place you have prepared and are preparing for us. Lord, we also ask for grace as we seek to fight that we don't grow complacent with the sin that is constantly showing up in our lives, but we fight it, we recognize the way it is affecting our entire lives. And Lord, that we would, like good soldiers, develop our own battle plans so we can abstain from it. And Lord, give us grace that we could be representatives that we could be people that you use by your grace and for your glory to see others come to faith in Jesus. I don't know why you would do it that way, but you've chosen to do it that way. So give us a faithfulness there. Lord, I pray for anyone here that has never trusted in Christ, that they would recognize that he is their savior from sin. 
And Lord, that they would repent and believe today. Thank you for this time and this place and this people that have gathered. Use this message to just spur us on and encourage us throughout this next week. It's in Christ's name we pray.